How's it going? <laughs> uh, we have been in 1 Peter for a few weeks, and uh, I mean, as a church, mostly that's how we study the Bible on Sundays, is going through a book and coming to however God teaches us, whether we want to hear those words or not, or whether they're, as they might be today, even somewhat offensive or not. And we'll, we'll get to some of that, of, of what, what it means to be offended by God. Um, but before that, if we take maybe like a step back, this letter is written to wanderers, to people who are wandering, to people who are, uh, in this particular time, uh, literally out there kind of doing life in, in, on their own in a new way. But as we get to read it, we realize actually there's a lot of us that, get, that gets reflected in there. Now, we tend to do life on our own way, and that leads us to wandering around. Uh, people in, uh, during uh, Peter's time had to move from their homes for various reasons. And actually, we have some of those people here, even just yesterday. Uh, a new person moving from Italy, who came from Salerno, uh, by the way. Uh, now, you don't have to move from your home in order to identify with what Peter is talking about here. Because all, we all have parts of us that feel like they're not really settled, they're not really at home. They're kind of wandering a bit. Uh, and I think that's something that everyone can identify with, that inner sense of wandering. And what kind of comes up here in this particular passage is that we wander when we go our own way. When we decide to do what's kind of right in our own eyes is when we get into mistakes. Shortcuts become long cuts, as, we kind of, as I learned from my dad growing up. Oh, this is a shortcut. Like, oh man, you could add another half hour to the drive. And so in, in this section here, Isaiah 53, 6 comes up, which is uh, this verse here. Uh, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to our own way. That's what it means to wander. We've all gone astray. Why did we go astray? Because we, all of us have turned to our own way. We all kind of are doing things on our own terms. Now, the, the, uh, the answer to that, the antidote to that, is a life of surrender. Surrendering our whole lives to the Lord aligns us to the path of wholeness. It keeps us off of that path of wandering around, doing life on our own, doing the long cuts, and gives us this path of wholeness. The way of Jesus is the way of being made whole. And if it's a way, if it's a following, then it is actually like doing things the way that he calls us to do. But it is much more than just being good and following the rules. It's much more than that. Because in that same verse, this, the second half of this verse says this, we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned our own way. But then the second half is this really great news, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Now, iniquity is not a word I use in kind of general day-to-day -day language. I didn't use the word iniquity once yet this morning, which is flabbergasting. It's just another word for brokenness, that wanderingness. A wandering heart is a broken one. And all of our brokenness has been laid on Jesus. We don't have to bear that burden ourselves. He's taken the wandering parts of us and given us a new way of life. And this new life has a new way of living. It's a new way. It's new rails to run on. And this new way of living is first and foremost about a surrender. So we surrender that old way of living, which can be difficult sometimes. No one's saying it's easy. It can be difficult. We surrender our own way of living uh, and that spiritual wandering that leads to empty lives, and we get to give in to love. We get to do that. We get to give in to Jesus' love. So when we say, I follow Jesus, that means we say, I have surrendered my own path to his path. And you may not like all parts of that path. In fact, there's going to be lots of parts you're going to be like, this is not a really cool way to walk. But it is a better one because it's his path. He's not only the destination, but he's how we get there. He, he is the path itself. And his path is where wholeness is found. 
But let's talk a little bit about this um, offensiveness. And this is going to come up because we're saying things that are not, you know, uh, kind of generally accepted in society today. Uh, we want to go our own way. Just like a tantruming toddler who yells and screams because they can't play with that set of knives or because they can't put their hands on that hot stove, uh, we kick and scream when we don't get to do the things we want to do. Even though that might bring us harm, we still are like, but I still just kind of want to do my own thing. Like, I just, I want to have my own freedom, even if it's going to hurt me. But just know this, like the Christian life, it's, uh, it's a part of it is being offended. That's just, that's a general part of it. In fact, if you aren't offended by God in some way, it probably means you're not worshiping God anymore. You're worshiping something else you've created. So we're going to look at this idea of what it means to surrender, which is easy to say when you're like, oh, yeah, I can surrender to something that I already like. What about surrendering to something that you don't initially like to begin with? That's another level. But we're going to talk about what it means to surrender, how it's connected to our wholeness. So um, what Peter does is he kind of moves to this general idea of surrender and then gets it twos to two specific areas. So we're going to do the same thing. We're just going to follow the way that Peter's um, teaching us here, the way God's teaching us here through Peter. And we're going to look at surrender in general and then look surrender more specifically. Um, so if we start here uh, in verse 13, uh, it's kind of like general rules of what it looks like to surrender. And actually, the very first word in these verses, the very first word in verse 13 is uh, it's submit, to surrender, to give into, to subject yourself to. And Peter is writing to everyone who is a believer in Jesus. So if you aren't yet a believer in Jesus, there ought to be no expectation that you would surrender to him. Why would you? That's not how it works. First, we surrender to him, and then we kind of uh, follow what he tells us to do. So if you have been made whole by Jesus, if he's made new, that's what we get to do. It's an, it's an overflow from that, if that makes sense. It's the way that things, um, first things first kind of thing. But okay, let's say you are a believer or interested in um, understanding what believers think and how believers kind of act. The very first thing we're called to do is to submit ourselves to the Lord's sake not for anyone else's sake, for the Lord's sake, to every human authority, whether the emperor as a supreme authority or other governors. Now, when Peter is writing this, the emperor at the time most likely was, well, it was either Nero or Claudius, but most likely was probably this emperor named Claudius, who was the first Roman emperor to persecute Christians or Jews because Romans couldn't tell Jews and Christians apart. Um, so basically, they just persecute them all. Like, I'll oh, get out of here. In fact, the reason why these people have had to leave their homes was most likely because of Claudius himself saying, you guys can't, there's too many Christians and Jews in this area, you have to leave. So the reason why they had to leave their homes was because of this governor, this emperor, and yet that's also the person who Peter is telling these Christians to submit themselves to. That's not a very, that's, a, that's an otherworldly way to live. Because they were living in actual persecution, not perceived persecution, actual real persecution. And he's telling these people who've lost their homes, their livelihoods, their culture, to submit to the very person who caused these things. I think that should really give us pause to how we view our government, especially as Christians. I mean, obviously I'm American. The way Americans view their government is different than the way Christians view their government here, of course. But there's still that element where we kind of want to do our own thing and be rebellious. Everybody does. Or you want to speak poorly about the government and just, you know, throw the darts at them. I get it. Every, no, it's so easy to, you know, every, not everybody's doing a great job either. We can be critical of the government. But what does it mean to actually submit or surrender to the government? Even when some of their policies might be persecuting you yourself. And there's lots of different specifics we can get into that. And we're not going to get into that today. But the general posture for a Christian 
is one of surrender to authority, especially authority in government. So that's government. The next thing Peter talks about is um, uh, pro giving proper respect to everyone. Uh, and he's not saying proper respect to people who you agree with. He's saying proper respect to people who align with your political beliefs or proper respect to people who, I don't know, like the same things you do, whatever the things might be. This means honoring everybody. It means everyone has a dignity, every single person. People with homes, people who don't have homes, equal dignity. We don't treat them the same, though. People with one kind of skin color, another kind of skin color. People who are on benefits to CEOs, to ex-cons and stay-at-home moms. Everyone deserves dignity. Everybody does. And that's how we ought to live. And if someone isn't feeling that dignity, or especially if someone in society might be pushed down and marginalized a bit, that means we probably need to give them more than we would for the average person. That's a good thing. That's a very Christian thing. That's a way to love people. What uh, Peter also talks about is loving the family. Loving the family. And we also surrender to the family of believers that God has given us. Now, I don't know how your own physical family has worked, Sometimes maybe you'd be like, oh, I love my brothers and sisters and my parents. They're fantastic. They're great. And if I could have picked them, I would have. Not very many people I know would say that same exact thing. You can't pick your family, can you? You also, you cannot pick who's in this room. And thank God, because we would have shown favoritism in some way or another, right? No, some, who has picked who's going to be in this room is God himself. And how dare us stop any of that by thinking we need to keep people out or you know, mildly keep people out by kind of like passively, aggressively keeping them out. We have our little Christian tricks. We all do. I don't get it. But Romans 12.10 says, be devoted to one another in love. Devoted. Like, are we really devoted to each other? Like, devoted to each other. That's, that's an intense word. That's like marriage vow level intensity. Honor one another above yourselves. That's more than, Paul doesn't say uh, tolerate each other in Romans. He says devote each other, honor each other. We are called to honor each other above ourselves. That's a different way of living. That's not how the world naturally works. That's a different way of living. It requires effort, requires work. It's not easy. And without the Holy Spirit working in us, will actually be impossible. Jesus' path of wholeness requires us to expend ourselves for other people's sake. In fact, that's, even, that's literally the definition of righteousness. You give of yourself so that someone else gets a benefit out of it. And... That doesn't have to be just with people you like. It's other people who are in this family um, who are with you. And I, I don't re actually don't care loads if you like other people or not. What I really care about is if we're loving other people well. You don't have to like everybody. You know, some people are going to be friends, people aren't. That's cool. I would love for it would be great if we all liked each other. But loving each other is really, it's much more difficult, much more meaningful, and there's just a lot more that comes from it. Many places in the Bible tells us we must love others in the church. So the question is maybe like, how can you honor someone else this week? How can you go out of your way to honor someone who you wouldn't normally? That's what it means to be devoted to each other. Uh, one other thing this has to require, like implicitly, like as, an as an assumption, is it requires us to be in each other's lives. You can't really devote yourself to them if you don't really see them. Now, I'm not saying we all have to devote to each other. Even a small church like this, it's literally impossible for us to all be devoted to every single person, one to however many people here, 30 or 35 or something total. But whether we make Sunday mornings or not, whether we make missional community meetings or not, we can still live lives that are devoted to each other. We just have to be in each other's lives in some way. 
and whatever works out for you. We're all in different stages. This doesn't have to be like a burden. It can actually be like a loving, kind of giving, life-giving kind of thing. It's about the relationships we have with people, not about a meeting we put on. And thank God, because meetings are great. I love doing this, but surely the church is more than this. Missional community meetings, they're great. I love them. I come back like happy from them because, oh, I got to be with people. But a missional community is more than a missional community meeting, right? We're doing more than just setting meetings up. Last general thing uh, about surrender here is freedom. We're called to, at verse 16, uh, live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We all chase freedom. Very few of, a- of us probably ask, why? What's freedom for? We all want to have freedom. I-, I get it. Everybody does. But what's the reason for that? Is it sure it's not freedom in itself? There's something more. The reason for freedom in this verse, the reason for freedom is to surrender. That's the reason you have freedom, is to surrender to God, to live as God's slaves. That's not to do something contrary to God and be like, oh, I have freedom in Christ, so I can go do this thing I want to do, which is the theme that happened in uni over and over again. We're Christians in uni, that's what you heard. Uh, Oh, I'm not allowed to drink, but this is freedom in Christ, so I can drink. That's the opposite of what freedom in Christ is about. It's about being able to live the way that God calls us to, like so devoted that we're like slaves to God, who's not a bad master, he's a great master to have. Now, slavery uh, or surrendering does sound like a bad thing, and it will be a bad thing unless we're surrendering to God. Because surrendering to God doesn't bring subjugation. It, it brings out wholeness. It doesn't hold us back. Actually, it sets us free. This is the ironic thing. We use our freedom to live as God's slaves and actually get more freedom out of it in the end. Surrendering to God uncovers who we truly are and enables us to live as our true authentic selves. And only you have that true authentic self. And that has to be called out for the rest of us. And we get to live as a people empowered by God to live in ways like we couldn't do otherwise. See, our freedom was bought by Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, which is kind of a big deal. We don't use that freedom to do what we want to do. We do it in order to, tr- to surrender ourselves to how God calls us to live. See, freedom in Christ transforms us from the self-serving, ego-driven robots that we will be otherwise to other-centered servants. And so what are we using our freedom in Christ for? One, it might be like just recognizing the fact that you're free in Christ by itself might be a step for you. That's an amazing thing. Nothing else in this world has claim over you. Only Jesus has claim over you. And you get to live with all the freedom that comes with. That's an amazing thing. And the question is, oh, that's great. And maybe I get that now. So like, what do I do with that? What we get to do is we live as God's slaves. Taking advantage of it in that way. And living that way silences people who are being stupid, saying stupid things about what Christians supposedly believe in and say and do and live in all kinds of ways that are not actually the way that we live. But if we live this, only if we live this way, truly surrendering in this way, can we actually like silence that talk that ought not to be there. So let's talk briefly about what surrender is and what it's not. Because I think we could easily hear this as like, oh, so we just become doormats for everybody? Like, no, that's not what surrendering is about. That's not what it's about. A life of surrender is not about being a doormat. Uh, that's a life of niceness. 
And it's very easy to exchange the two because it's kind of easier to live a life of niceness than it is a life of surrender. A life of, if you're trying to be a nice person, you will let other people take advantage of you. People will do that. And you will give yourself away in so many ways that you probably won't have anything left. You will feel like you have to say yes to everything. How could you say no? You're a Christian. This person needs help. How can you ever say no to anything ever? That's a doormat. That's niceness. That's not what we're called to. The path of niceness does not allow for healthy, proper boundaries that God himself has set up in our lives. And here's the thing. I think a nice person, when when we act that way, we think we have to come through all the time. And ironically, what that does is it puts us in the position of being the savior. If we're not nice, what good can happen? Whatever being nice means there. But we're not the hero. And thank God for that. We're not the hero. You won't be able to come through for others in all the ways that everybody will want. You just won't. And actually, especially if you're a leader, most of leading is just like letting people down. In the nicest and like most sanctifying way possible, letting people down. Letting people down is just it's like a part of life. Surrendering to the Lord first and not to others first is what can save us from that path of niceness. Because we're serving the Lord. We're not serving them. We're not serving our ego. We're serving the Lord. If we're serving the Lord, sometimes that means that we are going to have to you know, give of ourselves in ways that we don't think. Sometimes it doesn't mean that. How do we know? Only if we talk to God. Only if we learn more about him. So we're not doormats. But let me also say for other people uh, who might be uh, maybe overly guarded, there are aspects in your life that will keep you guarded and protected Time, relationships, emotional vulnerability, all those kinds of things. A life of surrender to the Lord will lead you to serving other people and will lead you to go beyond what you think you can do by yourself. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit work in us, beyond your own means. Now, God does not call people to burn out. He doesn't call that. But he does call us to work in a way that will make you dependent in ways that are uncomfortable sometimes, if not often. There is no way to surrender and keep our independence. I wish I wasn't true. I really wish. I wish I could be independent and surrender. I really do. But there's just not. We can either choose a path of wholeness or choose a path of independence. You have a choice. You can live either way. But a life of surrender is a life of dependence. And that requires, which is maybe the most difficult thing behind this, that requires us to trust Jesus, the person, not our theology first, which, I mean, theology is great, not rules first. Rules are there for reasons, right? But the person of Jesus first. And that requires a relationship, a deep, intense relationship where you get to know him in a way that you wouldn't know him otherwise. Surrendering our whole lives to the Lord aligns us to the path of wholeness. That's kind of the general idea. And let me say also, if at any point here you're like, I don't think that's true, or I had this massive question that you didn't get to, Greg, Um, please go to this website. You might have some of those questions in this next section here. Um, RedeemerMCR.com slash ask. It's confidential. I get an email. It doesn't say who it's from. And if if people send in questions, we'll talk about it at the end of the service. Um, So let's just get right into it, right? Let's talk about slaves. What's the deal? Peter is talking about slaves here like it's okay, like it's normal. Is this an okay thing? Um, what, what, What is going on here, Peter? Well, uh, let's first kind of get, get an idea of, of the uh, context that Peter is writing in, because uh, he's not writing in our 21st century context. He's writing um, in the 2nd century AD. When we say slave, uh, we aren't thinking 
Uh, we ought, what, generally, what we will think of is the most recent kind of human chattel slavery. A human is kidnapped from their homeland, stolen, brought somewhere else, and they are property only for somebody who will own them. And the only thing that they are is like, like, like a machine and at best or even worse. Forced to work as things. That kind of slavery is completely reprehensible and contrary to the Bible in all of its ways. I know that in the American South, there were preachers who tried to say, like, because of these, this kind of stuff here, that slavery, therefore, is all okay. And that was just, like, just a load of, of, of every worst thing you could think of. Because if you actually read the Bible, it's just proof that that's just not true. So the slavery written here, written about here, is not a one-to-one similarity with our first idea of what slavery is about. But it, it, it's not like slaves had a great time in the Bible time either. So there's a little bit of an overlap as well. It actually had quite a range, slavery in the New Testament. Uh, there were slaves that managed households, that worked, functioned like a PA or a business manager for a firm. And then there were slaves who did all the gross and nasty work. Some were treated well, some not so well. Some had good masters or bosses. Some had bad masters and bosses. And Peter talks about it here, getting beat. Like, that's not something we generally do if you didn't, you know, get your Q4, you know, uh, targets. You don't get beat in some back room. Uh, things are a little bit different now, aren't they? And that's a good thing. Um, and, of course, it, some slaves were certainly mistreated in the New Testament era, and not all of them, though. And I think that's one major difference between slavery from what we first think of and slavery that happened then. So I think also there's a level to another level of overlap to trying to imagine what slavery was like then. If you think of the working class in Victorian England, that's a, there is some similarity of what slavery looked like then. There was very few chances of like getting up in the world, uh, but you were able to work, you were able to have money, uh, you were able to do some things, but the conditions were not very great. Uh, and thank God that those conditions don't exist anymore. It's actually a very Christian thing for those conditions to not exist anymore. Um, but it's not one-to-one with what we think of slavery first off. So it's kind of broad-reaching. And I'm not trying to uh, uh, explain away the horrors of slavery, especially in the New Testament era at all. I'm just trying to broaden the range of what it looked like for slaves. I mean, Peter is talking to slaves who had good experiences and bad experiences. And so there's a, there's a level of, there's a range here. Now, one of the things, um, before we maybe get into some of these specific questions, one of the things that would shock original readers to, uh, of a letter like this written to churches is that Peter is writing to slaves like they're humans because they are. Because he just said recently, honor everybody. So Peter, by even addressing them and giving them all of this length of time, is elevating their status in society they didn't have before. Inside the church, the status of a slave was the same as someone who was a citizen of Rome. And to be a citizen of Rome was kind of a big deal. In fact, that was one thing, especially in the early church, which is one thing why I love our, um, our free prayer time that we have. That was something that was simultaneously attractive and uh, not attractive to people in the early church was regardless of your social standing, everyone has a voice here because we're all the same before Jesus. We're all the same before the cross. And I think we can probably learn a lot in the UK of our, uh, our obsession with class and society and our anxiety that we have about that. I think we can learn a lot from what is being said here, let alone of what Peter's readers read then. So before we have a bit of a high horse of like, oh, well, we don't do that now, aren't we so cultured? We're really not. I mean, we've grown, and, I, and thank God we have, but there's so much more to do. People, anyway, I'm not going to go off on that. I'm sorry. 
Is it, <laughs> what sermon am I talking about here? Uh, so, okay, it would be a shocking thing for people uh, to know that slaves and citizens both had equal rights in the church and also equal responsibility. If you have equal rights, slaves have the same kind of moral responsibility as a citizen would. This is the radical welcome that churches still ought to have today, that we need to have today. It doesn't matter if you've lived on benefits your whole life or if you're the CEO, if you have a PhD, if you're, or if you're the one mopping the floors. If your skin is white, if it's black, before Jesus, we are all equal and we all have equal responsibility. We're a family. And it's very clever and rebellious for Peter to give this dignity to slaves, to people in, that, in society's position there, that actually, if followed through, would lead to an end of that slavery system itself, which is exactly how it worked in the UK. The main reasons, uh, arguments made against slavery come from places just like here in 1 Peter in the UK, which is why slavery doesn't exist anymore. That's an amazing thing. It took a long time to get there. And there's lots of stuff that you know, society can do in order to continue in that process. But that's uh, kind of where the New Testament was going with it. Now, there's a lot more I can say about that, and I'm just not going to right now because we don't have the time. If you have questions, I'm more than happy to go there, wherever questions you might have. Um, so go to that website, and we can talk about it afterwards. Um, now, uh, nobody here probably has the same experience of being a slave in this room, but I think we've all had some kind of job we found difficult, at least. Uh, I think uh, we have probably, made, hopefully none of us have been whipped in our job, but surely all of us have been mistreated in our jobs. I think that's probably a common experience. Uh, maybe even in your job now. So what are, and Alicia, you're not allowed to answer that one. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, what are some principles, even if we're not slaves, what are some principles that we can learn from uh, in our own workplace, knowing that it's not a one-to-one similarity, but it's also not a complete disconnect? So what, what are some things we can learn from? Well, let's look at, um, starting in verse 18. It says, uh, we are to surrender to those who are above us, whether they're good or bad people, because of a reverent fear of God. Again, we're submitting to God first. Uh, and the main thing though, that Peter's talking about here is suffering for doing good. He's not saying suffering for the own mess that you got yourself into. Like, that's just called natural consequences. It's suffering for doing good. There are times when we do good and we suffer for exactly that, which can be really discouraging because it's hard enough to do something that's good, let alone when you get stick for it. You're like, oh, I just tried to do something good and now I'm getting piled. I'm never going to do that again. That's, that's kind of what we learn these things about ourselves. We're not never going to do that again. Well, verse 21 tells us this is exactly part of our calling as Christians is to suffer for doing good. That's not a super exciting and encouraging thing to hear, but it is the truth. Verse 21 uh, to this you recalled, suffer from doing good, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Part of our calling in being Christians is to suffer for doing good. That's what it means. This is why we need each other, because we can't do that alone. Part of what it means for God to rescue you from darkness and to light, what amazing thing do you get to do? Ah, oh, you're welcome. You get to suffer for doing good. That's a difficult life to live, but it is a very meaningful life to live. In fact, speaking of meaning, um, the uh, verse 20, it talks about if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. If, someone ha- if you have the message translation in front of you, I think it says something like, yeah, that's what it means to have a life that counts. We all want a life that counts. 
None of us wants to suffer, but we all want a life that counts. That's something you can't shortcut around. If you want a life, a life of meaning, part of it is going to mean, not all of it, surely, but part of it is going to mean you're going to suffer for doing the good that God's called you to do. That's what a life that counts is about. I want a life that counts. I don't want to suffer. But I do want a life that counts. Uh, and that's what it means to, that, uh, to be a Christian. And what we find here and throughout the New Testament is that living the way outlined here as a slave suffering for doing good is the ideal image of the Christian life. Verse 16, live as God's slaves. The slave, instead of it being like the lowest form of existence, is actually the highest form of existence as a Christian. So think of that lowly person. When I think of you know, who is like the most marginalized person in society, that person that you're thinking of, that's the ideal image of what it means to live as Christians in our society. That's not success, you know, the way that the world sees it. That's not climbing the ladder of middle-class success, getting all the stuff. Now, you can have stuff, that's fine, but are we living as God's slaves with that stuff? That's the difficult part. That's the difficult part. And that's a big ask. There's a sign-up sheep for who wants to be a slave. Oh, it's empty. <laughs> Nobody wants to. Thankfully, though, what we have is the ultimate experience of a slave coming from Jesus himself. Jesus is the ultimate experience. He is the model of what it means to be God's slave. Surely, we can't think of anyone else who has given up anything more than Jesus. He was perfect and yet harassed. He entrusted himself to those who did not have his best at heart. And even as he was being publicly tortured outside the city walls, is still, with his dying breath, trying to bless the people who were trying to put him to death. I don't really know what that means. I want to live like that, though. That's a life that counts. How did Jesus get back at them? Not through threats. Through blessing them. But I want to get back at that person. Because Jesus knew that he was God's slave, he didn't have to be Pilate's slave. He didn't have to be the religious leader's slave. He didn't have to be the disciple's slave. He didn't have to be his own ego slave. He didn't have to be Satan's slave when he was tempted. He got to be God's slave, and that gave him the freedom to live a life that counts. And it's the same thing for you. You are not a slave to others. You're not a slave to your boss. You're not a slave to this church. You're not a slave to all the other things that come up. You get to be God's slave, and God is a boss who doesn't rule in feel, fear, he rules in love. And more than just kind of that, that being a model out there, because if that's, if that's all we get is Jesus is this model, like that sounds great, but that's actually impossible for me to do, because I know myself and I might last maybe five minutes, maybe if I'm lucky on a good day, but that's not gonna be like a lifelong thing for me. More of just the model is we get the means. Jesus is not only what we get to live into, but how we live it out. Look at verse 24. He himself bore our sins, our brokenness, in his body on the cross so that we might die to our sins like being slaves to things other than God and live for righteousness. He bore our sins so that we would die to sin and live in the very way that we're talking about today. And if you've had some thoughts running through your head of like, oh, this is probably what it would mean for my life, that is exactly what God is calling you to live into and that's exactly what Jesus is empowering you to do through his Holy Spirit. By Jesus' wounds, our wounds have been healed. Without Jesus, our wounds are just left to fester. They're not going to heal. And so what we need to do is the difficult work of inviting him into the wounds of our lives and only to the extent that we do that will we experience the healing that we really want. We just know it's a difficult road. That's the only way to be whole.
So he's the model and, and our means, and because Christ bore our suffering, that allows us to bear others. So that's just a little bit of what it looks like to live as a slave in your vocation. And I'm not saying job, because your vocation is the things that you do, whether you get paid for it or not. Secondly, what uh, Peter gets to is, uh, is married life. In this next section, Peter addresses married uh, women and men, and with women, a particular focus on women who are married to people who aren't believers yet. And in this time, the way actually the, the early church grew very quickly is uh, two people who were married, often the woman would hear about the gospel and convert first because, let's face it, men, women get it quicker than we do, and that's not a way of like self-deprecation, let's get everybody on my side, that's just truth. Um, and uh, and often what happened is men would eventually convert to Christianity as well, but through long, decades-long kind, of, um, kind of loving, slaving kind of work by women to love uh, their partners who maybe it wasn't always easy to do. And in this time, uh, uh, if, if, uh, for Peter to address men and women together equally, as he's doing here, is again, it's another level, like a rebellious overturning of society. Roman society was very like male-orientated. The man was the head of the house. If you were... Married to this man, you had to worship this man's gods, which meant you had to go to this man's temple feasts, which meant you had to have his social kind of club that was always organized around the worship of other gods. And what Peter's saying here is you don't have to worship the gods of your husband. You get to worship your God that you want. That's a rebellious thing to be written around here. Karen Jobes, who's a famous commentator, and Bible scholar, she has this to say about this particular passage. While some modern interpreters consider New Testament household code codes like this to be hopelessly chauvinistic, and first reading, maybe that's the feeling that we get, um, our modern readers fail to read the codes against their contemporary literature, basically against what was written at the time, which shows that the New Testament writers actually subverted cultural expectations by elevating the wife and the slave with unparalleled dignity. There's no other writing around during this time that made men and women equal, that made uh, husbands and wives equal, the way that Peter's writing here. Now, you might have some questions about this, and I bet you do. I do too. Maybe you don't like what God says here, and that is completely fine. I can't say I'm loving it all the time. If you would like something to be addressed that we haven't addressed, please, seriously, ask the question. And if you're like, oh no, should I ask that? Probably other people have that same question too. We're, we're here to get into it, and we're okay to talk this through and learn from what God has to say to us together. Now, uh, some of the things that are addressed here, uh, women who are married to men who aren't believers are supposed to surrender to the husbands in a way that's aligned with this kind of radical love. Again, doesn't mean a doormat, doesn't mean being nice, it means being um, a slave to God first before anything, which is true of any marriage, whether you're married to a believer or not. Uh, and this doesn't mean that, you're, um, that you can't disagree. Uh, this means as Jesus surrendered to the Father, so you are to surrender to your partner in order to love them, in order for them to see Jesus on display. Not as your partner's slave, but as God's slave. In a marriage relationship, it's really easy for life to become transactional. And this is of any marriage relationship. If I do this, then I'll do this. If I you know, put the kids to sleep, then do this, or if I do the washing up this time, then I'm going to expect this time. You know, that's fine to divvy up jobs and things like that, but that's not kind of the radical love that Jesus is talking, that God's talking to us about here. We are to surrender in love, and the hope here is that 
through living the, the path of wholeness, the path that Jesus calls us to, that they will come to know Jesus through the way that we act, even if it takes a while. Again, guys, we're not quick. Like, we need some time. And Peter also is saying, like, women are called to true beauty, which rebels even today in the face of, like, Instagram beauty. You might be like, oh, we have grown so much as a, as a culture, right? No, we're still obsessed with outward beauty, like, all the time. True beauty takes real time. Insta-beauty is, like, instant. It's here and then it's gone. True beauty is the character that Christ calls us to, and this is a life that's aligned with him. And this is still radically subversive in our time to actually live out in this way. We have an image-based culture, right? If not more so than then. Than. And in all of this, uh, what we're talking about is doing what is right versus giving in to fear. And so really what Peter is calling for is women to be courageous in their faith. This is not an easy way to live. It's a very difficult way to live. Outside of the Holy Spirit working, it's impossible and Peter is calling for courageous women, giving in to insta-beauty and being like, well, that's the best it can possibly get for me is have an outward image of, of beauty. That doesn't really cost very much. It's not really worth very much either. Giving in is living in spite with your partner. Doing what is right is a life of surrender aligned with God's path of wholeness. And that takes courage. And from speaking to um, women who have been married to men who, are, who aren't believers, that's it, difficult life. And it's commendable. That's, that's a life that counts. And the only way any woman can pull this off is through Jesus' spirit working through you. That's the only way. And men, uh, in, in the same way, Peter starts with talking about, uh, starting in verse seven, uh, men in the same way of surrendering to the Lord, live with your partner in understanding. That means you have to know them. I, I think many men don't really know their wives. They don't ask questions to know them. Uh, they maybe don't even have the desire to even ask the questions to know them. Knowing your wife means actively listening to her, know, finding the themes in her life that kind of keep bubbling up to the surface and pursuing her in that. Now, I don't know, but I wonder really how many men truly know their wives or even desire to know them because it, it could be a much easier life to not know your wife and just kind of live without rocking the boat. And just like for women, men, this doesn't mean always agreeing with everything that your partner is going to say or think. It means challenging them as well. And this is what masculinity in a marriage is. Refusing to flee from the image of God present in our wives that is different than the image of God represented in ours. That can be a scary thing. That can be a frustrating thing. That can be something you would rather not deal with. But that isn't masculinity. There's the other side. There's toxic masculinity that's either overpowering your wife or completely fleeing from it, um, but real, true biblical masculinity is knowing your wife in such a way that you can call out the unique image of God that she has that you don't, and however that makes you feel. Because that is one of the main reasons you're married to that woman, is for that very reason, to call out the image of God in her. So men, we need to do that. We need to call out the image of God in our wives. And if you are doing that, you'll often find your place in places that you don't know what to do. And men, we don't like that. We want to know what to do. <laughs> You're going to find your place in that fog of like, how in the world did we get here? How is there a way back? What in the world is happening? How can I solve this? How can I fix it, right? And women, of course, want to be fixed. No, no, don't do that. Many an experience of trying to do that. It's a bad thing. 
Also, you can't do that. Who, who are you? You can't do that. The best you could do is possibly ask a good question for, their, for, for God to be able to come in and, and change a situation. To love your wife is to move into those foggy spaces, knowing that you are God's slave, not your wife's slave, not your own competency slave or whatever, called to love your wife beyond yourself. And it says here, and this is something that when you first read it, you're like, hang on, what? It says here, treat uh, them, your partner, your wives with respect as the weaker partner. What does that mean? Ooh, that's really cringy. That's really cringy. It's something like, I would love to preach through 1 Peter. Can we skip a couple sections here? No, we can't. We've got to deal with all the God's words. So what does this mean? Because that can sound exactly like toxic masculinity. We have not moved at all from this, right? Well, really what's going on there, and I don't think it's actually very much different in our culture now, which is really sad when you think about it, 2,000 years plus, is just like in, in, uh, in our time or, or in their time, Unfortunately, it's still true. Women still have to think of where they're walking at night. They still have to think of, if a police officer comes up to me, how am I going to make sure I'm safe? I have never had to think about that. People, women still have to think of, uh, you know, how, is it, how am I going to get home? Uh, what, what's in my drink? Did I see my drink the whole night? All those kind of things. I have never had to think that. Women don't get promoted as often. Women make less money. There are far less women CEOs. There are far less women in all sorts of things. That's what it means by weaker partner, weaker in society partner. Not that you're weaker in, in dignity or in worth because he says heirs of the precious gift of life. Not you're the heir and your wife is like some kind of mini heir. No, you are both heirs to this. You both have dignity. So how are we as men going to treat women with the respect they deserve in a world where they're not treated with the respect they get? We have to kind of go over and above. That's what it means to be a Christian man, especially if you're married to a woman. So if we don't live this, live this way, God doesn't play. He doesn't mess around because our prayers will be hindered. Do this in such a way so your prayers will be, God will be like, I'm not even gonna listen to you. You're treating your wife with not respect. You're not treating her as an like equal co-heir with the dignity she deserves. Why should I listen to your prayers? God doesn't play with that kind of hypocrisy. He doesn't mess around. He's not playing a game. And, so, and rightfully so. He shouldn't listen to a weak hypocrite praying for himself. So in order for our, our access to, be God, to God to be equal, we need to treat our wife with equal dignity. If you think I'm going after the guys, I am. I'm sorry, I just am. And I'm, that, I'm included in this. I think we all need to grow in this way. Now, some of this might sound a bit foreign, a bit out there, and you might be like, this is still super offensive, and that is completely fine. Um, again, that, uh, if you have questions or even comments that you're like, I think we need to bring this up, um, please go to that site. But it made me think of um, where my grandparents came from, my great-grandparents came from. My great-grandparents were born in Armenia, and they had to flee, they were Christians, so they had to flee Armenian during the Turkish genocide, and so they boarded uh, one of three boats, I can't... I think one went to the UK, one went to France. I'm not sure. I think the other one was Holland or something like that. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, I think it was going to South America. Um, so they all went to a different country. My great-grandparents, who weren't married at the time, um, I think their families ended up on the same boat that went to France. They ended up going to Paris. Apparently, I still have relatives there. Um, they got married in France, and then they boarded a boat to America, a typical immigrant story of going to America in the 1900s. They lived in New York and New Jersey, and my grandfather was born in New York. Now, for my Armenian family, immigrating to not just one country, but two countries, 
from villages to cities now, uh, speaking languages they didn't get, um, things culturally done in ways that they didn't understand, they would have found many things were different. Some things were better, some things weren't so great. Uh, some things, surely, some things were offensive, especially to their, their cultural background. But this is what it means to be a wanderer, a citizen of heaven, and yet living in this world. We are brought from death to life, and sometimes when it happens, the way of life can feel offensive because we're so used to that way of death. This is true for everyone who follows Jesus. And God offends all of us. He's an equal opportunity offender. He's like, actually, you guys all have it wrong. Here's the way to do it. And he's like a good comedian. When he makes fun of everybody, you know, it's like, oh, that's cool. I can laugh with someone like that. God offends all of us uh, when what he says is different from either how we live or what we believe. That's just a reality. We are one way, we come into contact with God and he's another way. And that difference, that friction can feel offensive because it rubs us the wrong way because we kind of want to be right all the time, which is normal. This is true of all humans of all times. This is not just a unique experience in our kind of woke 21st century. It's God is offensive. He is and he will be. And again, if you don't think God is offensive, you're probably not worshiping God of the Bible. You've probably created something else. But the problem here though isn't really with God. It's not really with God. Who has the words of life? Who, not us, by the way. Who knows how to live the best in this world? Not us. Who knows what's right all the time in every situation? Not us. Who goes astray? Oh, yeah, that's us. Who wants to do things that's right in our own eyes and lead to horror? Yeah, that's us. Who thinks we know it all? Yeah, that's us. And maybe churches are the worst offenders in this. And we're called to surrender. In our surrendering, when we are offended, it tells us, it's actually very, very helpful. To get that kind of information is really, really helpful because it tells us something's not aligned right. Something's here and something's here and it just kind of feels off kilter. It's like if you've ever, I said I wasn't gonna use more metaphors. I even crossed it out on the thing right in front of me, but here we go. Uh, maybe it's helpful. It's like if you've ever had a car with a, a tire alignment problem, like the car's all wobbling. You're like, this thing is gonna like fall off on the motorway. The tires are gonna fall out. It doesn't feel right. You have to get the tires aligned right. And only then can you go in a straight line without wobbling and feeling like you're gonna burst into flames any moment. But the issue is it's an alignment problem. So our task as those who are God's slaves is to realign ourselves with him. And that's just, if you've heard the word repentance, that's what repentance is. Realigning our lives with his. So men, there are places in our lives where we need to surrender and realign our view with women. That's true of every single man in here because no one's perfect. Women, there are places in your lives where you need to surrender and realign what living a courageous life looks like. That's true because no one here is perfect. In the workplace, we need to surrender and realign our view of work with God's view of work, being God's slaves. All of us need to surrender and realign ourselves to the reason for our freedom. All of us need to surrender to each other because we all need it. And as we surrender, we talked about what the ultimate model and means is with Jesus himself. We have that ultimate model of what it means to be God's slave, Jesus himself, on the cross. He is not only the model, he's also the means, he's how we get there through surrendering to him. See, the way of the cross, even though that's that downward mobility thing, even though that's like the marginalized of society thing, the slave kind of thing to do, the way of the cross is the way to a life that counts. The way of the cross is the way of surrender. It can't be anything else. 
And what we find as we surrender is a wholeness that we can't find anywhere else. And this bread, or this wafer anyway, and cup is an encapsulation of surrender and wholeness. Jesus facing the cross told his, told his father, this is God the son telling God the father, not my way, but yours. And that's the one we follow. So we say the same thing, not my way, Jesus, but yours. And because Jesus surrendered, we can surrender. Because Jesus suffered, he put to death ultimate suffering. We're going to suffer in this world, yes, but we will never ultimately suffer not knowing the Lord in all of his glory when we die and when he comes again. It's easy to surrender when we realize that what we're surrendering to is love. What we're surrendering to is wholeness. What we're surrendering to is a blank check and your name's written on it. Who wouldn't want to take that? Let's not hold back from being loved or from being made whole. Now, if you haven't taken communion before, uh, you're welcome to join in with us, regardless of where you are with our church, if you surrender along with us. If you surrender to Jesus, this is what we do together. As much as we need food and water, uh, we need Jesus in our lives. And if you haven't yet surrendered to Jesus, you don't have to take it. No one's going to be watching. Uh, please don't do the religious